It's time for Truth, a ministry of Truth Family Bible Church in Middleton, Idaho. It's time for Truth exists to glorify God through the edification of His saints in our local church and for the benefit of the church around the world. I am your host, Pastor Danny Steinmeier, and I am joined in studio with my friend and fellow elder at TFBC, Jim Berg. Once again, thank you so much for being there, uh, wherever that may be and whenever that may be. We're glad that you have made us part of your day, and uh, we continue in our little mini-series here, working through our church leadership and asking uh, questions of elder candidates. And once again, we have in studio uh, Kelly Shoemaker. And before we get to Kelly, uh, Jim, how are you today? Yeah, doing great. It's nice to have Kelly in studio. We've known him and Jackie and the Shoemaker family for a long time and love them dearly, and it's also nice to have the longest beard in the studio again. So, not that I was intimidated by Brett, but he does have a pretty nice beard. Yeah, well, I'll just say that mine has uh, more color in it. Uh, <laughs> you but... are getting gray. <laughs> it <laughs> not is. like mine. It's, it's head, we're all heading the same direction. Yeah, mine is chrome. Uh, but looking, uh, looking forward to our time together again with uh, Kelly. So, we will uh, get to it here shortly. Uh, uh, Kelly, thanks for being here. Appreciate you uh, going through this process. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's uh, let's jump right in, and uh, we're, we spent a, an hour approximately in our previous episode uh, working through some good questions, and we're working through uh, additional questions here today, and uh, seeking to get to know Kelly and the way he thinks and the way he applies um, his understanding of Scripture. And so we'll just start off uh, with a question about uh, the influences in your life, Kelly. Uh, who are the people and theologians, pastors, and authors who have influenced you most, and uh, if, and how so? Um, I would start off with J.P. Moreland. That was when I was a, a brand new Christian. Um, he he was uh, I, I became a Christian through Campus Crusade for Christ, and he was one of the speakers um, that do, doing conferences for them. and And he was emphasizing the dangers of anti intellectualism. Um, that he was beating that drum hard, and and that was that was very significant in my development as um, I, my commitment to the development of a Christian mind, I guess. Um, R.C. Sproul. Well, I'm going to pause you for a second. Sure. Because uh, I, I didn't realize that for you. Maybe you, I feel like maybe you did mention that to me once before, but did you know that J.P. Moreland used to be the pastor of uh, the church I was in? I know that there's a connection in, in speaking with okay. your dad. Yeah. You know, you yeah. My yeah. Okay. He told me, he's told me lots of stories about him, him and J.P. Okay. Yes. Very and good. Even yeah. disagreements. Yes, you know. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, yes. Uh, JP does happen to be Armenian, but we will uh, we'll, we'll appreciate him for all the good things. I still he does. like him. Yes. Uh, no, we can appreciate Armenians. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, yeah, but just talk. Just mentioning disagreements. I would be one of them. But anyway. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Please continue. Um, R.C. Sproul. Um, I, I think uh, he he helped me a lot in in um, understanding the nature of salvation, um, human will, um, the doctrines of grace, those kinds of things. Um, John Piper also helped me um, in his, uh, understanding um, the nature of uh, a, a reformed view of soteriology, very much so. Um, and also, um, John Piper really helped me 
um, in, in my view of God's glory. And, and uh, one book in particular I, I consider very foundational. Um, John MacArthur, I think just, just his solid Bible teaching throughout the years. Um, Doug Wilson has been very good for me um, as far as apologetics and worldview. Um, and then I would say uh, I had a pastor in Pocatello when I lived there. His name is Mike Powell. And, uh, and he was also very instrumental in just helping me mature as a Christian in general. And then, um, and then I, I had a guy that discipled me. Um, he's the one who actually turned me on to J.P. Marlin. His name is Steve Odemark. And he went on to get his, um, his doctorate in philosophy. He teaches at the college level um, with a desire to influence um, young people in, in the, at the university level. Um, and, he would, and his influence, like he, he read voraciously. We were roommates for a while because um, uh, as he was discipling me in college and, and he had this chair and it was just surrounded by books and he would read like three hours every night. And, uh, and, and he is, yeah, he, he is a great inspiration to me. Um, and then I would say Francis Schaeffer, um, as far as worldview and a, a particular view of, of, um, apologetics too. All right. So that leads us into the next question, which was a really dangerous one for me because there are three of us on a text group, Jesse Tapper, Kelly, and myself, and we're constantly sharing the latest books that we're reading. Now we haven't done it in a while, but when I retired, this was by far my biggest miss on my budget was the amount of money I spent on books because I have this time to read now. So, Kelly, what are your favorite books, favorite resources that you use as you study and learn about God outside of the Bible? Outside of the Bible. Um, I think Chosen by God um, helped me understand um, uh, just that idea of chosen for salvation by God, R.C. Sproul. Um, another one is Willing to Believe by R.C. Sproul. And that one um, helped me understand the nature of human will. And uh, it's, it's, it's an historical theology book that basically it, it, um, it takes, it compares Augustine and Pelagius. So it goes into semi-Pelagianism and Pelagianism, compares their two systems of thought, and then it moves on to Calvin and Arminius, and then Luther and Erasmus, and then finally Edwards and Finney, which... Granted, I don't think that's a fair matchup <laughs> intellectually. Yeah. Um, and, but it's very, it was very, very helpful to me. And, and, I, and I know it, it's, it has influenced me and, and even my teaching. Uh, there have been times when I've gone back and I've, and I've read certain sections and I'm like, oh, that's why I teach that. I forgot where I got that. But it, it's hugely influential. Love Your God With All Your Mind by J.P. Moreland. Again, that idea of... Um, Christians should not be anti-intellectual. Um, Scaling the Secular City by J.P. Moreland. I, I read that one the first time in college, and I would say I understood about 30% of it. Um, and then I read it again later, and I don't know what changed, but I understood almost all of it <laughs> about 10, 15 years later. And that was really, to me, that was really encouraging um, to see how much I understood the second time. Um, God's, the the John, John Piper book, um, God's passion for his glory, and that is essentially based on Jonathan Edwards' book, um, The End for Which God Created the Earth. Um, that was super helpful. Uh, and I always go back to Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. I use that a lot. Um, uh, a Puritan book helped me understand um, the nature of 
true saving faith. It's called the, the Almost Christian Discovered by Matthew Mead. Um, the Enemy Within by Chris Lundgaard, which is a, a modern rewrite of John Owen's um, Indwelling Sin. <clears throat> um, a, a book that, uh, that I determined I would read every year, but I've only read it once, is The, the Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. That was really impactful to me. And then um, I, I, I regularly use in, in different teaching MacArthur's, MacArthur, John Calvin, and Matthew Henry's um, Bible commentaries. Those are the three that I use regularly. Um, and, if, and Francis Schaeffer, The God Who Is There, Escape from Reason, He Is There and He Is Not Silent. And then, uh, then I, I, I read Doug Wilson's blog a lot too. Very not good. all of it. Not, not all of it. They're just the things that interest me that, that are along the, what I want to know. No, very good. Those are, there, there's some really good stuff there. I'm surprised you didn't mention Nancy Piercy's uh, uh, books. I know that's been influential for you. Yeah, yeah. And well, and, and I'm reading one of her books for the very first time, and I'm not even all the way through it. Oh, yeah. But I, I own several of her books. What was the title of the other book? Uh, Love uh, Thy Body. No. Oh, uh, okay. There was that one, but there was another one. Um, Total Truth. Total Truth. That one, that is, that is amazing. That, that book is, is amazing on Lordship, especially. Hmm. It's great. Um, yeah, but, but she, she has been very, very helpful. Uh, I think, uh, Herbert Schlossberg, his book on, on worldview is also uh, very idols for destruction. I'm in the middle of that one right now. And that's really good on worldview. Nice. All right. Let's do some association here. Um, tell us briefly your thoughts on the following people and their contributions to Christianity and to you personally. You already mentioned, uh, we'll, we'll skip the first one here. You already mentioned R.C. Sproul. Uh, Vody Bauckham. A great defender against cultural Marxism in the church. John MacArthur. A solid expositor and a great watchdog for the church, the universal church and his own church. Tim Keller. Um, a, champion, a champion of third wayism which is simply a way to make room for cultural leftism in the church. Oh, man, you nailed it. Yep. And I believe his thinking in this area is a watershed into theological liberalism. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. it's a gateway, totally. Yeah, it's, he's, a sorry. Gateway. he's a gateway drug. Not sorry. Good, no, no we, we, we in, intentionally put uh, uh, different kind of folks in here. Uh, Jack Hibbs. I don't know much about him, besides I respect that he remained open with his church during the COVID in California. Mm -hmm. But I don't know much else about him. Al Mohler. Uh, he seems to talk out one side of his mouth and then act out the other side in his hiring decisions at the, at the university level. Okay, Andy Stanley. Um, I think he's been outside the, the camp for a long time, in my opinion. I just, so I false teacher. Yeah, I don't. And I, he, I like he to has say zero, that cred, <laughs> zero cred for me. Yeah. Uh, J.C. Ryle. Um, he was a great defender of the church against um, theological liberalism in his day. Um, I read his biography. Um, unfortunately, he, less, he lost the fight with his own son, who became himself a liberal theologian, which I think is super duper sad. Yeah, yeah. Charles Finney? Um, he is Arminianism taken to its natural end, <laughs> if that makes sense. He, uh, he brought a lot of gimmicks and tricks to modern evangelicalism in the name of reaching the lost. Like just, just that idea, if, 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 each, if each person's heart has a key, 
Um, we need to figure out what gimmick or trick is needed for each individual heart. And that's, that's the end result of Arminianism. That's light shows in churches. That's yep. smoke machines in yep. churches. That's boy bands and girl bands, I guess, right. <laughs> in churches. Plexiglass. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, John Calvin. Um, I found out that I was a Calvinist before I knew anything about him. <laughs> um, um, he's, he's a giant of systematic theology, I think one of the firsts. Um, ironic, ironically, um, his name is tied to Calvinist, you know, the doctrines of grace, but, but he really didn't write as much about those kinds of things. as He didn't really write as much as Luther, Edwards, or Augustine. So he, he's really not the granddaddy of that kind of thinking. All right. Very good. Thank you. All right. So creeds and confessions, let's move to that section. Uh, tell us about your view of historical contemporary creeds and confessions, ones that you have favorites of or, or like, um, as you, as you think about that. Um, the one that I've referenced and read the most is the Baptist, um, 1689, um, confession. Um, there are actually certain sections of this creed that, that were enormously helpful to me in my thinking re, uh, regarding the response to COVID and to what was going on over the last couple of years. Um, I believe most creeds um, come out of theological controversy. Um, so, so I think their value is in, is in clarifying the issue that arose um, during that controversy, and, and it can give us a window into um, historical theology. So the Nicene Creed is an example, like the, the Council of Nicaea was put together because of a controversy, and a creed came out of that to clarify that controversy. No, it's very, that's a very good, excellent point. And, and so making sure that we don't go back into the errors that uh, were brought forward at that time, those creeds and confessions really keep us stayed in the truth. And uh, one of the things I think is uh, helpful, I learned this phrase from another pastor, and I really like it, we don't pretend like we're the first people to have read our Bible. We don't <laughs> yeah. have to start from zero. And it, it is hubris. From... It's hubris to deny that. That's I right. Think. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And it's actually why I like these statements. You know, it, it, it does mark a point in history where something happened and they're scriptural based. And so it's just the idea of we've gone and studied what the world is bringing towards us in scripture and we've documented. And here's our answer. We've documented. That's answer. good. Here's a document. And that's yeah. essentially what I, I, I get. The creeds is the same thing. They're beautiful. Some of them. They're beautiful in picture, and like you mm. said, they, they point to a historical event usually, and uh, and yeah, they're great. It, it brings you back to, as you said, Danny, what they've already been through, and we need to learn from history. We and don't have to rebuild. We don't have to rebuild foundations. Right. Right. That's right. Uh, good. Well, how would you describe your understanding of biblical manhood and womanhood? So, for instance, speaking in the categories of complementarianism, egalitarianism, patriarchy. Uh, can you describe the differences between these views and their importance and implications? And maybe also a little bit about where you stand on the issues. Okay. Um, I, I think of egalitarianism as simply Marxist ideology, ideology being applied to gender roles within the church, family, and nation. So I don't give it any credit at all. Uh, I think it's, it's a new idea that has interestingly enough, uh, corresponds with the rise of Marxist, the, the Communist Manifesto in his writings. So you, connect, you connect feminism and Marxism. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think certain theologians introduced complementarianism 
back in the 80s, um, well, they, they tried to give patriarchy a more culturally sensitive name, and they tried to improve patriarchy's um, reputation, if that makes sense. Um, so they tried to repackage it to make it more palatable to a culture awash in feminism. And, and so it, things never go well when you cede territory like that in battle or in, in any other way. It's a third way. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the way I understand it, um, complementarianism focuses on roles. So men are assigned certain roles and women are assigned certain other roles. And it all sounds kind of arbitrary. So, so men have these roles because they're stronger. Well, here's a strong woman. Why can't she do it? You, you know what I mean? If it's just roles, why can't a woman fulfill a male role if she's better at it than most of the men around her? If it's simply roles, um, that, that, is, that, that is easy to come up with reasons why, why we, can, we can skirt around some of those rules concerning roles. Um, so, um, so, so when it's merely roles, again, it seems like they could just be interchangeable. So, but patriarchy is focused more on the creation order, headship, and the proper imaging of the nature of God through the human race, male and female. So it's not just roles. It's, it's the way that we are created to image God in our maleness and femaleness as a race. So, so patriarchy is rooted in our created nature, not just in arbitrary roles, that are assigned to us that could have been different. Uh, I don't know if that makes, I hope that makes sense. <laughs> no, it's no good. Yeah. Yeah. It, it puts male and female before the roles, which is exactly the way God designed it. Right. He didn't create the roles and then say, okay, man's going to do this and woman's going to do that. He right. created man for a purpose, ahead of the role even, purpose. Yeah, I remember the, one of the um, pre-marital counseling books that, that my wife and I had to read through. It was called Rocking the Roles. Um, it was just about, and it was complementarianism, basically. Mm. And I think, as well, I, th I think one of the weaknesses of complementarianism is it, it, it seemed so limited in, and remains very limited in the way in which it, um, it approaches uh, manhood and womanhood and it's, it really limits its discussion only to the life in the church and in the home, which, of course, those are very important. And, and there's a lot of good work that's done there. It's not that they get, get everything wrong. Um, clearly, they, they, are, they were seeking to try to uh, pull back a, from, from, feminist, uh, from feminist error and, and abuse. But the, the challenge is, is that complementarianism, it, because of you, you talked about sort of that arbitrary nature of, of its approach to roles, it, it struggles to deal with anything beyond talking about whether or not a woman can preach and whether, uh, you know, and, and the role of a woman in the home under the, her, the headship of her husband. It, it doesn't address things like the workplace. It doesn't address things like po politics. It doesn't address things like combat, a con you know, defense yeah. and combat. So uh, complementarianism t typically has not had much to say about uh, those types of roles and those types of functions because they, they see that the, that that's not in, in their, in their view, in their, in their, in the way they're, they approach it, 
they don't see that to be the emphasis primarily of the New Testament. And so because Paul is certainly dealing with a lot of issues related to the church and the family, that's where they that's where complementarian complementarianism focuses their attention as opposed to the overall design for men and women. What are men for? What are women for? And how does that then move into and how has God designed them for and to, purpose, to be that right. purpose? I totally agree. And yeah. then from there, it, it, that's how that's where you get into roles. Right. You get into roles because of design, exactly. not you have mm. roles uh, or you're designed. Um, I'm not sure how to say that right. Um, not the other way around. I guess right, it's yeah. that way. Yeah, so. totally. All right. So given that women's roles in the church, give us your views on what that looks like. Elders, deaconesses, anything else that you can think of? Um, only men can be elders. I think there is biblical room for the idea of deacons and deaconesses. But um, given our current cultural climate, uh, I don't think that implementing deaconesses to be wise right now, as I believe it could be used as a foothold for those who would want to bring full feminization into church leadership. So I feel like in, in our current cultural climate, all it does is provide handholds for um, progressives that would want to take advantage of that in some way. Thanks for your view on that, Kelly. Just to bring our, our listeners just a, a little bit of context there for the reason for that question. Um, and I think you you answered it well. Uh, the idea in, in the scripture, in the, in the areas of qualification for deacons, it does mention, it, it, in Greek there isn't a word for, uh, for wife or wives, it's, it's women, and then the context determines uh, what type of woman you're, you're speaking about. And in terms of, uh, in terms of 1 Timothy 3, you have the, the issue of the qualifications for the women. And so are the, is the women speaking you know what, what women are looking for are we looking wives to wives or deaconesses wives or or, yeah. or deacons who are women so we we refer to them as deaconesses and um and i what so there are good and godly people that take uh, both sides that these are the wives of deacons so that a, a deacon uh, a deacon role is somewhat of a team sport it's the husband it's the the deacon and his wife mm-hmm. uh, because they they seem to be those that are serving together um, or it could be a distinct role within the church for uh, for women to hold. And so uh, what you're referring to is this idea of uh, you, you can say something accidentally by having deaconesses, right? You, well, you've got women in leadership, right? Well, maybe you don't, but deaconesses might signal that and it just gets either confusing or on the, on the shadier side of, of things, having women in that role with titled positions that can lead, it, it's a handhold as you identified um, for, for many people in our cultural context for, um, for women in leadership because, of, because we swim in feminist waters. Mm-hmm. That, that becomes some of the concern and some of those are real concerns because it's not like it's never happened. It, it does happen. <laughs> it does happen, yeah. And so uh, that's, that's what you're talking about. And um, so anyway, that, that's just the, the, the issue and the debate. And uh, and at, at this time, yeah, we we do not do not have deaconesses. Um, we um, but I, I do I, I'm definitely sympathetic to that uh, interpretation because I, I really don't think that the office of of deacon uh, or deaconess is the same as the office of elder in terms of authority. Um, that really you're a leader in service. Um, you're 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 helping 
to serve the needs of the body. And everyone in the church is to be a deacon. Everyone is to be serving in some fashion. What you're doing is you're identifying it, um, your exemplary servants. Men and women in, in, in Acts, it identifies the first deacons as being men full of the Holy Spirit. And, um, and interestingly, I think there's a good argument to be made there for not having deaconesses by the Acts passage from the standpoint of, well, they chose men, and they were dealing with actually widows, they were dealing with women, and they were dealing with well, serving tables and things like that, things you would almost automatically kind of go, well, wouldn't that be best suited for a woman? But they chose men. So that's a, it, it's actually a pretty strong argument there. But anyway, long, longer story, longer. The, uh, the idea here is that everyone should be serving. And there is value in highlighting, I think, uh, women in the church who are leaders of service, not in the sense necessarily of having... Uh, and, and the authority on on par because all the deacons are under the authority and leadership of the elders. Um, so when when that's understood, you can have deaconesses. And so not every church that has deaconesses is is gone woke or liberal or feminist. But um, but it certainly it, it can be a concern depending on on the view that they hold and the challenges that they're facing. So anyway, sorry that was an, uh, that was for free, um, no extra charge. <laughs> But that was a little extra context for that. Question. Yeah, so that's manhood and womanhood in the church. Now bring it into the family. Bring it into, you know, what does the roles look like within a marriage, Kelly? I would say a godly marriage is where the husband um, leads, loves, and serves his wife by giving up his life for her, like Christ did for the church, and washing, washing her with the water of the word. Um, wives should be subject to their husbands as the church is to Christ. Um, she should be his most trusted counselor. But when push comes to, su- to shove, he is the one who is responsible for the decisions in the family. Um, so he, sh- he should be the loving, sacrificial head and leader, and she should be willing to submit herself to his leadership. Good. Um, just a qu- uh, clarifying question there. Uh, what is, how would you, how do you, maybe you, maybe you already did just kind of describe it, but you, you used the phrase, um, I think something along the lines of sacrificing his life for her. Uh, what does that What does that mean in terms of that um, that function and the role? What does that actually What does that kind of look like? And, and I'll, let me let me just set it up with a little bit of context here. Um, remember Sarah Palin when she was uh, vice presidential candidate with John mm-hmm. McCain, you know, and there was a lot of controversy because she was a, a an avowed you know Christian woman. The first time that a woman, I believe, was on a presidential ticket. Um, she predated Hillary, actually. And so um, what is, um, or, was that con- or was Hillary contemporary? Anyway, the idea there was, um, there was big questions. Hey, wait a minute. You know, Christians don't think that women should be uh, in these types of roles. Hmm. Uh, and so, so a lot of the language was along the lines that um, Sarah Palin's husband, you know, we just talked about patriarchy a minute ago. Sarah Palin's husband sa- sacrificed his life for her so that she could fulfill her dreams. Hmm. So what you just yeah. used a phrase of, uh, in terms of, of a husband is, is called to sacrifice his life for his wife. What does that, what does that actually yeah, mean? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that, um, that, that he is not, he is not a, a king that requires obeisance. You know, the, 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 um, like everyone else needs to sacrifice f- 
for me because I am it. Mm. If that makes sense, it like he should be the one who is who is giving up his life for the sake of his family, and and um, I, I think like yeah, I always think of that phrase, "My life for theirs, my life for theirs, my life." Like if anyone, um, if suffering is required, most likely it needs to be me. Um, um, I, you know, that's a good rule of thumb. I would I would say sometimes. Oh, obviously, my kids are going to suffer when I spank them. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? That's the next question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My kids are going to suffer when I spank them. But, but I think that if, um, that I should, be, um, I should be the one taking the brunt of, if somebody needs to take the brunt, it needs to be me of something. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So I think I, I'd like to build on that just a little bit. Sure. So I think the danger that Danny and I are sensitive to and we've seen is, in, in the church, I would say in the past 20 years, it's the idea of we should be servant leaders, right? It's we should always serve our wife, but how you serve her really matters. So give us an idea of what that looks like and in, in, is always sacrificing. Like what what is best for her? Yeah, I mean, sometimes um, you have to move into the conflict and and say this is, I know this is hard for you, but this is what, we need to do. And, and in a sense, there's, I mean, that's hard for her, but it's, it's hard for you too. But see, some people would yeah. hear that and they would say, well, that doesn't sound like sacrificing for your wife because basically what complementarianism turns into is soft egalitarianism is sacrificing your life for hers means you always her, giving her, always her giving her, always her giving, way, yeah, or always doing the things yeah. that make her life easy. That's what it means. You have and to actually make that's easy. Easier. That's actually easy for the guy. Yeah. Because now you don't have to move into conflict. So it's, that is it's, not... It's a that pacifier. Is, yes. And, yeah, I and know, then the guy, then often the guy will get angry. Yeah. Um, like, you know, that's not the way I wanted to go. And look, mm. now look at the results. Right. So yeah, servant, yeah. So servant <laughs> ends up trumping leadership also. I mean, yeah. no, one, no one's here saying serving your family is a bad thing. But this idea of the servant leadership and, and what's become of the contemporary understanding of these things... Um, and, and, and using some of the same phraseology, that's why we were just pressing on yeah. this a little yeah. bit, is, this, is the recognition of the headship, the leadership that a husband is, is to provide, as opposed to the marshmallow man uh, at home that, that doesn't make... You, you said that's earlier... Not, that's not sacrificing. Okay, I think ultimately, that's, that's right? the important part. That's the key part. Yeah, right? that's, that's not sacrificing. Part. That's right. you taking the easy road. Yeah, and we know Kelly enough. I've seen him do this where he's made hard decisions that caused uncomfort that led to blessings. And that's the key is, is being able to do that. This is the long-term best for our family and for you. So, And, and that's why yeah, I, I wanted Kelly I would Kelly rather to, avoid conflict. And that's why I wanted <laughs> Kelly to be able to, to explain yeah. that to yeah. our listeners because... Um, Sometimes the sometimes the language. Well, look, a lot of things have been redefined, right? Mm. And so when you see when you said sacrifice for your family, we wanted to hear you identify a little bit more of what that means because sometimes that means yeah, you're taking the bullets, and sometimes the bullets are coming from inside the house. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's sometimes the way that, that's sometimes the way it, it needs to be, and yeah. and uh, uh, but that doesn't mean that you're not uh, seeking to serve and to and to uh, even do what's hard, totally. right? To suffer. Um, even you know, in, in a variety of different ways. And so anyway, we just wanted to hear a little bit more. Really important. That. That's really helpful. Yep. What are some key principles in your mind for successful godly parenting? 
Don't exasperate your children. Um, I think that that there's a number of ways you can do this by by being prideful, always having to be right, um, not listening to them, to their perspective on a situation, Um, multiplying rules. Um, In in a sense, there there was only one tree in the garden and, and Adam and Eve could eat from every other tree. There was just one. So multiplying rules, I think, can be exasperating. Um, faithfully dis- discipline them when they break God's law. One tree was enough to, for them to fall, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. It didn't take much else. Yeah. 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 Um, face- faithfully dis- discipline them when they break God's law and are disobedient to any authority, yours and others. Love them. You know, spend time with them. Um, you know, like people will say, oh, I try to have quality time. Like, you can't get quality time without quantity time. And I need to remember, myself, I need to remember that every single year, every, <laughs> all the time. There's only time. There's only time, yeah. Um, pray for them. I want to see, you know, you want to see your children grow, to, to know the Lord. That, that's, that's not possible without the Lord acting. Um, lots of Bible all the time. So family devotions are great, but it should be at other times too, you know, like, um, um, when you you rise up, when you sit down, yeah, all the time, like this should just, the Bible should just be your, your, your family's language. Um, let them, uh, another thing is, is let them one, let them know when the decision is made and the time for appeal is over. I think that's very important because the, a, a child can grow up hamstrung um, in that area in dealing with a boss or with other authorities in the future. If if you just keep if you think that your role is to convince them, is to grind you know to grind that wheel until your your child is convinced that your decision is the right decision, that can be really bad for your kids. Clarify that a little bit more. Clarify that a little bit more for me. So. Because you you dovetailed that with the idea of making sure that uh, your children know that the t- when the time for appeal is over and the decision is made, is that what you're getting at? In yeah, terms that of, that there's no more conversation. That it's, yeah, the, uh, it's time for it's time for movement. It's time for decision, and we're no longer it's the discussion, the 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 other viewpoints or whatever it is that's that's concluded. Is that what you're getting? The at? The time for debate is over. It's it's now time for submission. A, a submission. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think you should shepherd. It says, you know, in in, in First Timothy, um, that an elder should should um, control their household with. I don't know if I'm getting the words right. With all dignity, so you should shepherd your children with all dignity. And and I would say, in general, I would not consider ruling with an elevated yelling voice to be with all dignity. So, so um, you, you should you should parent in such a way that that you don't have to continually raise your voice in order to get done what needs to get done. I don't think that would be considered with all dignity. Um, and, it, um, and, and I think it's true with any authority structure. Once you have to continually pr- proclaim that you are worthy of respect because you're their dad or you know, you're their boss, whatever, and you have to force them to respect you, especially when they're older, you have probably already lost their respect. Um, so, so in general, as a parent, and it, and is just in general, behave yourself as a parent in such a way that you don't have to make them 
respect you once you get older, if, if that makes sense. All right, moving on to your biblical understanding of divorce and remarriage. Um, I think that um, that re- the divorce uh, can happen and there can be an innocent party in that. Um, um, but I think remarriage is allowed if there is unfaithfulness, if there's adultery. So Matthew 19, 9. If, so that's the one caveat for, for remarriage. That's the, the only condition for remarriage is death or if your spouse has been um, uh, adulterous. Um, and then, but I think divorce can happen. So that's, that's remarriage. It can only happen under, under death or adultery. Um, the, and I think uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 15, if, you, if, your spouse, if your unbelieving spouse is utterly unwilling to continue being married to you, I mean, I mean, really, you have no choice. You know, they can divorce you. So in this, in this case, the offended spouse should seek reconciliation and remain unmarried unless um, the, the condition in Matthew 19.9 is, is, is actualized. Does that make sense? So, so if your spouse deserts you, um, you should continue to seek reconciliation. Until they are and, remarried? Until, or until yeah, they... until they... Until they remarry commit commit adultery essentially which is what that would be to I remarry see, see. yeah um, um until that happens and then i believe that you are uh, that 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 is you've met the condition for remarriage you can't control the divorce um but you know if they if they leave you um, but you should seek reconciliation as long as you can um yeah yeah, uh, yes, that's my view. Okay. Yeah. And uh, are you familiar with the concept known as biblical abandonment, and what is what is it, and what is your view of it? Um, I I was not um, familiar with that. I tr- I tried to look it up. I didn't feel like I could find a unified description in different different areas. But I assume it's it's referring to First Corinthians seven twelve and thirteen. Let me, let me read that real quick. Um, it says, But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. Um, I assume that that's referring to that. Um, and I, yeah, I, I guess that's my that's my understanding of biblical abandonment. If your spouse leaves, you should let them go. You're still you're still under the conditions laid out earlier in the chapter that that you should remain un- unmarried. Uh, until until um, grounds for remarriage are are actualized according to matthew nineteen nine is that is that what that you're referring to with that it certainly includes that there, there are other extensions of the view uh, where um, sometimes people view the grounds for grounds for divorce even if if the spouse for instance is has abandoned their role or abandoned uh, you know in some measure spiritually or abandoned uh, s- certain elements of their role, even if they're physically present in the home, that type of thing. Um, so there's there's a, a number of different um, uh, 
elements to that. But uh, usually it's, it's a, it, in some ways it becomes a third way hmm. uh, of divorce. Like it usually, you know, it, it, it takes the idea of, well, um, you know, very often people view the idea of adultery as being the grounds for divorce, but uh, uh, there's a third way and, it, and it's uh, called this idea of abandonment. And it tends to be a, a rather broad net depending, it includes this, but a lot of things are read into 1 Corinthians 7, right. uh, in, into what, what does that mean uh, to consent to live with? What does it mean? Uh, mm, a yeah. few different things. To That's that. what we're seeing is they're, they're using the definition of abandonment on top of Correct. First Corinthians. So they're actually, they're trying to parse that and divide it into multiple categories, if that right. makes any sense. And it turns out... That's it, the danger. It turns out basically anybody can get divorced. That's it, what it that's leads what to. It, that's what it leads that's to. That's what it leads to. Is, for for know, almost virtually any reason. Right. Uh, you just, you claim they're an unbeliever. You, you know, you judge them to be an she unbeliever. She abandoned me because she didn't do my socks. You, you, you <laughs> judge that they've abandoned the, I, abandoned I, the, the love of, of, in the relationship. You know, all, all sorts of types of things. And right. so suddenly... You just get divorced uh, for any reason, and God blesses that. Right. Um, that's a, that's a and if they and if they think that that the, that they've achieved the grounds for remarriage, well, then, every, it, yeah, it usually goes with that too. Uh, yeah, right. there's pretty much no grounds, uh, no bars on remarriage in mm. modern evangelicalism today. And so, uh, anyway, there's just a number of different issues yeah. and views with that. Like when, like when First Corinthians seven says that. The, the spouse is free. free. Mm-hmm. I, I think that they're free of marital obligations. Like you, you don't have to have the same bank account now mm-hmm. anymore. You don't, you don't have, you, you, you know, have to have conjugal relations with that person anymore. You're free. It doesn't mean you're, f- I don't think it means you're free to just go get remarried because that opens the, that opens the door for the, the abusing the marriage covenant. It, does that make sense? There's a lot. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of issues yeah. going on with the whole subject. But yeah, just good to hear from you from your what your perspective is on these things. So, what is your view of divorced, remarried men serving in church leadership? Um, I think that if it if it is a biblically justified um, divorce and remarried situ- situation, which we've talked about, um, they should they they could in principle be allowed. Not they should. I, I wrote they should, but. They could, in principle, be allowed into leadership. Um, my thinking on the husband of one wife or the, the one woman man is a character attribute of the man himself, not, not necessarily his status. Um, so so a, a single guy could be behaving himself as a one woman man, but his status is not that he's a one woman man. Um, so if he has demonstrated himself faithful to the woman God has given him, forsaking all others, then he is, he is qualified, at least in that, in that sense. And um, now this qualification is independent of, of whether he has, um, this qualification is independent of, of whether he has been the innocent party in a divorce in the past. Like he has no control over that. As long as he has a demonstrated character of marital faithfulness, even if he has been sinned against by a previous spouse, I think he is qualified. Now, of course, judgment should be exercised in a case case by case basis. For instance, if a man has had three wives leave him, there might be some issues there, right? Like even if he claims he was in an innocent party the whole time, I think that you should you should you should have pause. Um, there was an example of um, at a previous church uh, of a man who was married and. Um, 
it didn't even last a year. It was before he was a believer. He became a believer. Um, he married a woman, and they, they've been married, what, 30 or 40 years. They had raised up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. They have grandchildren. Um, I think a man like that could, it has demonstrated that he is a one-woman man, if that makes sense. So it, probably highly unlikely, but possible. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. All right, moving to another kind of category of ecclesiology. How do you view the relationship between the plurality of elders? Um, I, I think elders, I think plurality of elders is, is biblical and it's, it's good um, practically too. Um, yeah, Bible's practical, you know. Um, elders will bring different knowledge, experience, and, and emphases to the elder team. Uh, this, I think this in general helps to keep the elder team balanced and it, and it mitigates the possibility of overemphasis or underemphasis in, in doctrine or church life. Um, the, also, the elders will have a diversity of giftings and skills, which also will help the church too. So, and, and I think it's good, just this separation of powers in general, that's a, that's a really good idea um, given uh, the fallen nature of man, if that makes sense. It's better so, not to have a king. Yeah. So given that, how do you handle disagreements among elders? What process or what's the appropriate way for handling those things? Well, I think as far as decision-making, I think um, elder majority rule is, is better than absolute unanimity. Um, before any decisions can be made. Uh, I think I like the idea of uh, majority rule better. Um, and, I, and I think if an elder is in the minority on, on a decision, in a majority rule decision, um, the goal should be unity even in the midst of disagreement. So, so if the elder disagrees and there's been a vote and the elder um, can can ha- in good conscience can decide to go along with that. He should do that, and he should keep his he should keep his mouth shut that they're that they're that he's not unified with that group. Does that make sense? Um, so if the but if the dissenting elder feels that the disagreement is significant enough and they cannot abide by it in good conscience, um, the goal should still be to preserve unity. So so in that case. Unity would require that that elder step down, and sometimes that needs to happen, and also keep his, he should not form his team. He should keep his mouth shut, if that makes sense. Yeah, I hope that it, it, it would never come to that, that, they, that there, if compromise is needed, they would work through that. But um, if it ever did come to that, that would be the right way to do it, I think. So not just to simply go uh, split the church and go start a new one. Yes. Yeah. And I think, you know, when, when David fled Saul, he fled alone and eventually people were gathered to him, but he didn't, he didn't go build his team and then flee. Hmm. He left alone. And I think that's a good principle. Like, you know, um, Saul was trying to kill him. He's trying to pin into the wall with a spear and he, and he left. Alone. So there was great injustice happening. And yet he still left alone and still considered Saul to be the anointed one, to be God's anointed. So I think there's a good practice there. Hmm. There's a real humility there. Yeah. 
So what would you say the weakness of unanimity then? The weakness of unanimity mm -hmm. that that if you um, if you this can happen on elder teams I've heard of it that that you can have um, two elders that that are in a constant conflict and they're always splitting splitting the vote building um, but essentially it means that you can you can um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for you can you can just be frozen as an elder team and never be able to make decisions on on anything yeah you can control it by the negative well yeah it's the strongest it's, yeah. person the strong the person with the most power is the person who says no the one no then you, the you end no. up with exactly. the king and it's the person that says no that's yeah. my point because he yeah. can he can throw the brakes on anything that uh and it can be right. a different person each time but yeah. the point is, right. is that the strongest person um is it ends up one per everyone has to submit to the one as opposed to the one submitting to the majority and the reason mm -hmm. we don't do that is because on issues Modeling and submitting is a very important biblical concept right? for fathers, for individuals, for all of us, right. including elders. And it's, so it's the idea of if I'm always right, then you're not submitting. You're just getting your way. And that's, that's prideful. That leads to pridefulness. I think that's, that's the danger. So, and the requirement of unanimity uh, really takes that away. Well, it's, no, it's, well it's, it emboldens that person. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. That, yeah, that yeah. emboldens Correct. that person to always be able to get his way. All he has to, instead of, just one vote, one vote away from getting your way on anything. One vote away from getting your way on everything. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, or at least stopping the will of other people. Um, yeah. And, and that way you do get your way is that you oppose. So I, I, we agree with that, and that's the way we would um, operate as, as elders here. Good. All right. Your views of how the elders should lead the congregation. All right. Um, I don't know if you guys have read this book, but um, first off, they should smell like sheep. The, the shepherds should smell like sheep. Um, so the reason that the the that the uh, the sheep know the voice of the shepherd and they follow him wherever they goes is because from birth he is holding them in his arms. He's he's rubbing them down. Um, he he is covered in sheep. <laughs> the shepherd is. So I, I think that that we need to be you know as much as we can involved in the lives of our people rubbing shoulders with them spending time with them you know having them over you know hospitality having them over you know as, as much as we can getting over to their houses um i know my my mike powell my old pastor he would he would just call people up and say hey we're headed over to the store we're gonna we're gonna get some ice cream can we come over and eat some ice cream with you <laughs> just spur of the moment we don't care if your house is clean we just want to come eat some ice cream with you and um i thought that was awesome um, secondly, they should guard the sheep by shooting the wolves. Um, in, in the book of Acts, uh, you know, when... Very when, aggressive language, I love very, it. Very, yes. Uh, <laughs> in, shoot them. Um, shoot them, yeah. <laughs> Even They're if they dangerous. smell like sheep. Even if they smell like sheep, yeah. Yeah, in the book of Acts, um, when, when Paul is saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders there on the beach, he, one of the things he says that, that um, wolves will rise up from among you. Like you men sitting here, one of you could potentially be a wolf. Like Judas was. Yeah, yeah. You need, you need to keep your keep alert. Um, so, um, elders need to be aware of their tactics and their strategies. Um, and then, so that's inside the church regarding threats outside the church um, that are trying to get into the church. The elders should seek to be men of Issachar, knowing the times of our societal moment 
and what should be done to lead and protect the sheep. Um, thirdly, they need to feed the sheep. Um, they should be teaching the Word of God faithfully every week in multiple venues, preaching, counseling, Bible studies, um, etc. And fourth, they should be in prayer for those under their charge. The desire is for these people to grow. That can only happen through God's enabling and help. Um, so the elders should beseech God continually for the local church's growth and maturity. Well, good. And uh, so how do you view the importance of the local church? It is absolutely essential. No believer should ever consider it okay to not be connected to a local body. Um, Hebrews Hebrews ten twenty five. Um, do not do not forsake the assembling together. Let me find it here. It's as very is clear common, as, as is common. common. Yeah, some, it does. Right? It happens a lot. Not forsaking our our own assembling together, as is that hap- as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And um, uh, so we are not Gnostics. We believe that bodies are important. We don't fulfill this command by gathering online where our bodies don't interact. We must be physically together to fulfill God's design for the church. All right. Talk about individual and corporate purposes for church discipline. Always an important concept. Yeah. For the individual, the goal is always restoration, not just raw punishment. Um, and this is why in Galatians 6, uh, Galatians 6, 1, we are called to be gentle with those who we have in the midst of church discipline. Um, so, so the, so that's for the individual. Um, the purpose corporately is to protect the body from potential wolves in sheep's clothing and to make, and also to make others in the congregation fear that the same thing could happen to them if, if they, uh, if they, and that, and that is a great, honestly, that is a great motivation for me. You know, I think of Nehemiah when he discovered sin in the ranks, he went over there and he ripped their beards out <laughs> and he beat them up. And I'm like, my hope is that if I mess up, that I would have several men show up at my doorstep ready to rip oh, my beard out. If you only had a beard. If you only had you a could, beard. If you, you know, only had yeah. a beard. Yeah. To rip my beard out, metaphorically, <laughs> uh, we would oh, have yeah. to be yeah. <laughs> tweezers. That is a great motivation to me. Yeah, and uh, and uh, and I fear for myself if I would ever find myself not in that situation. Thank you. Mm-hmm. It's a good reminder too that that is uh, an important element of civil uh, punitive matters. Also, right. that uh, when a when a nation doesn't punish its criminals, uh, when the death penalty, as a for instance, is not yeah. is not uh, is not utilized, is not done in such a way that the people fear um, uh, the, the and and the authority, uh, the the responsibility given to the elders is is to uh, discipline. It's, it's an amazing thing that God gives to sinful men. The, uh, the responsibility of disciplining uh, the, the flock and acknowledging that Christ, of course, is the chief shepherd and we don't have ultimate or final say, but yet 
he has delegated that, and that's an important uh, it's an important role. And yeah. it's 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 for the health of like you said the restoration, the health of the individual, but it's also has a very corporate um, uh, element and deterrent factor, mm-hmm. uh, as well as seeking to draw them to love and care for those who are in sin. All right. Well, good. Continuing to move forward here on matters related to the church. Can I say, can I say one more? Oh, thing? please go ahead. Um, one of the things that that um, I've I've done with my wife is identify here is the man that you call if I go sideways. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. In where whatever situation I'm in, that that's our desire is like here is your first call, and I and I when I'm doing well, <laughs> that that's what I tell her. If that does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's really good. Do you uh, moving on some some practical theology questions? Uh, do you have a particular view of eschatology, and if so, how important do you view your position, and how do you relate to other positions uh, that are not yours? And and then if you have a position, how do you relate to um, the position, official position of the church, which is a historic eschatology? Um, I I am pre-mill, and 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 I would admit admit that I'm woefully unstudied. That this is a this is an area of weakness for me. I am pre-mill because that's that's the kind of churches I've gone to in the past, and I, and I've and I've listened to the sermons and I've just believed it. Hmm. Um, so so because of this, I, I realize that I don't necessarily 100% own this myself. And so as a result, I hold that with a very open hand. And, and right now, I am interested in studying and learning about all of them. And uh, I don't think I've ever been in, in that we, we're a diverse church in that area, and I don't think I've ever been in a church like that. So it's interesting for me, and I'm interested in jumping into that in the future. Danger. I know, I know. <laughs> Jim Berg warns danger. That's a <laughs> deep rabbit hole. <laughs> All right, so moving on. What's your views of baptism? Household baptism, believer baptism, um, our position as it relates to truth family and our statement of faith, and in the Lundus Baptist Confession, 1689. I am, I, I, I consider myself pretty solidly credo-baptist. Um, and and uh, right now, I, I, I can't imagine a circumstance when that would change. Um, so, but so I don't have any disagreements with the TFBC statement of faith, or or with the um, London Baptist Confession, sixteen eighty nine on on baptism. And I don't have a problem with how how um, Truth Family Bible is um, is is uh, allowing for for freedom of conscience in our body in our bylaws. Is that in our bylaws? Yeah, on yeah. the matter of... On the matter yeah, of I don't have a problem with that. I think it's really cool, actually. Great. Uh, tell us about the Ordo Salutis. Uh, does faith precede regeneration, and does that uh, make any difference for anything? Um, I believe that, that regeneration precedes faith. I think John 3, you cannot even see, let alone place your faith in the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Um, that's, and I know there are other, other, other verses about that same, same idea. So the Ordo Salutis would be regeneration resulting, um, in faith. And, and there's a, there's a, uh, there's a call there and the, the internal call is part of regeneration that God 
initiates um, so that that results in faith and then that faith results in salvation and good works and after this is glorification all right so either you fly to meet the lord or you die and you meet the lord glorification by what, whatever means. <laughs> Unless you die in a plane crash. Oh, that's true. <laughs> it could be both. So I know you guys have done some biblical counseling, um, ACBC based. I know you took some originally had done that. Give us your view of kind of psychology, integration, and biblical counseling, kind of what that looks like and how you go about that. Yeah, yeah. I think this touches back on the, 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 the total truth view of lordship, um, that, that, that Jesus is lord of all truth, not just religious truth. Um, so, so I think because of this, biblical counseling is the way to go. Um, I think the integrationists play too close to a godless worldview that has um, a godless foundation in general. Um, so, so, so much of secular psychology mis- misdiagnoses the problem of man, and therefore they get the solution wrong. Which would be what? What would be the root problem of theirs? Um, well, I mean, it could be any number of things. You, you are you're a victim. Um, that's that's what all your that's why you're having all these problems. You you are oppressed. You know that even Marxist leanings there. Um, yeah, uh, I think that would be the big one. Is that, is that you are a victim, and it's um, that is your problem. Yeah. Mine would be that they, they start with the basis of man is neutral or worse than oh, man that is good. good. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's really true. I think that is, yeah, that's the, as soon as you go there, you've lost the whole Bible. Yeah. The whole How thing. can you help them? Yeah, right. when something is, is really rooted in the idea of self-esteem. Exactly. Uh, you're denying the fallenness of man. And when you, when the fall does not have a significant role in your understanding of who a human being Where is. Where do you go? Uh, then you can, yeah, it's difficult. You, you've, you've gotten so far off track uh, at step number one yeah. that it's difficult to, uh, to and, lead someone to the right And this is where John Piper, for me, was really helpful. He said that Jesus didn't die to show you how much you're worth to him. He, he died so that you would be free to see his worth. Hmm. That's good. If that makes sense, yeah. yeah. Definitely. Well, good. And uh, uh, I, I'm going to leave the script here for a moment and I, as we begin to wrap things up, um, as we uh, we are going a little bit long, but we want to um, respect the, the process as well. You, you mentioned something a little bit earlier about Gnosticism, but then also I know that um, we've had conversations before regarding the idea of the challenges that that modern Christianity and evangelicalism is, evangelicalism is facing in regards to pietism, would you? Um, I guess maybe if, if you want to talk about Gnosticism as well, but uh, would you talk about your understanding of the the problems with with pietism? Maybe d- yeah. identify what you mean by that, and um, and really what's what's the issue that we're facing? There's a uh, there is a philosophy. Um, that has has made its way into the church that is that is not, I believe, based on the Bible, and that is, and, and I don't know what the name of it is. I don't know what you give it. It's called Pietism. It wasn't originally called that, but it's the idea that reality itself is bifurcated. Um, that that you have spiritual truth, and then you have everything else. So 
spiritual soul. So, so that has made its way into the church. So it's dualism. Yeah, so it's a dualism. And, and, and um, so the Bible speaks to spiritual things. And, and God is concerned about those things. And um, that, they, they call that the upper story. So things like prayer and salvation and um, sanctification and all of these, I, I guess you could say, spiritually sounding words. The Bible is is that's what the, that's what it's, it's good for, for that it's good for that, but then in the um, in the the lower story that would it's called many different things but the second and this is huge Nancy Piercy influence for me in this um, and Francis Schaeffer um, she's a disciple of Francis Schaeffer so so um, so the, the idea so economics psychology uh, philosophy like. Um, many other things, you know, as you just make your way around around a university, medical ethics, um, all those things, you know, the the names <laughs> of the department door, the names on the doors of each department, those kind of things, are in the lower story, and and human reason, and and um, secular, and, and so basically, human reason on its own is sufficient to handle these different areas. Um, so that's the lower story. Um, so pot, that is basically, so, so, so someone who has given themselves over to this kind of thinking that reality is bifurcated in this way would be considered a pietist. And, well, uh, and there's and, a Christian, ver there's Christianity. I'll give you an is, example. So, yeah, so here's an example. Um, there was a pastor on Twitter who said, Something along the lines of, um, I'm careful about what my wife reads. Does that make sense? It was almost this, you know, I'm watching what my wife reads. And it was taken out of context and posted. And then major Christian leaders that are part of big organizations that are out there right now are countering this with, I trust my wife. She can read whatever she wants. And I think that that is, that's an example of piety where, where it's, she can do whatever she wants because she's a believer. And the answer is no, you're still responsible to lead her and understand. It doesn't, doesn't mean that I don't trust Judy. It's that she comes to me and says, can I read this book by this author? And, the, and so it's, it, it can lead its way into that, that because she's a believer, she's good. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and yeah is, you're going to come to good conclusions you're gonna because come, you're a believer. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that works its way into the church dangerously, Danny. And, so. the, and the issue is, is that that um, Romans one says that 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 the the reason why people believers is that they are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, and this affects how a scientist behaves himself in a lab. Mm, absolutely, and this affects how you know a, a social scientist how he develops his theories. He is expressing his rebellion against God, and that and that is that is the reality of things, and and. And I and I think that um, the the solution is obviously for the church to to cast off pietistic thinking and to consider that that Christ in His Word has something to say um, about every intellectual endeavor that that you can put your your hand to, and that and that there are going to be secular theories in each of these areas where people are expressing their rebellion to God. It, it is affecting their... Um, and so their reason is not neutral. 
they are it comes expressing back to lordship every time, yes, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. They are expressing. That sounds a lot like all life and godliness as well. It, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so the the solution is is your view of lordship. Christ is Lord of all areas, the spiritual and the secular. You know, like all. Yeah, all. And so, so I think Pietism truly is a, a scourge on the modern church because because what happens is this here's say here's this secular view so let's let's take socialism like people say it's just a different you know tomato tomato like the bible doesn't isn't concerned with that well well socialism has a set of foundational worldview beliefs mm-hmm. beliefs that you must believe in order to buy into socialism it has a, a, a basic view of what is man's basic problem. What is the solution to that problem? And, and it, it, I consider it a, a, a rival. A rival, and it's, it's like a backdoor to heresy. Because if a person commits themselves to socialism, they're committing themselves to foundational worldview answers that are at odds with what they say their theology is. And... And and so what what happens? But they is, try to live in the upper. They, they try to maintain a foot in both stories. Yes, right? they want to be both in the upper story, but they want to play in a by a different uh, by a different worldview in the lower story. Yes, right? and so there's this this and there's a and it's, and there's a co- cognitive dissonance that that um that is there. It shows in up, their life. It, and 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 a man can't a man or a woman can't continue to live with that cognitive dissonance it needs to res- it, it will eventually need to resolve itself and often the way that looks is their is their worldview eats their theology yeah. so that's why i say it's a it's a pathway to eventually to a theological liberalism and that's we talk about this we talked about it's even in complementarianism it's all of these things where we fundamentally we add categories on top of god's word we we categorize we take a word and we add to it, and then we categorize it, which leads right. to a box that God can't talk to because we've defined it. Instead yeah, of allowing God non, to define this it. This is the non-God he, box. Right instead of here. saying he speaks yeah. to everything, we're going, he speaks to everything, but we've got these exceptions, and all of a sudden your exception chest becomes bigger and bigger and bigger, and then you need a new chest, and then you need a storage unit, and you put God in such a small place mm. versus saying... Look, the scripture's clear. God is, he cares about everything. Yeah. Otherwise, he why would he have what, designed what it? What clothes I put on in the exactly. morning. Exactly. Yeah, there, there are principles That's right. derived That's right. from scripture. Right. Well, this has been a really helpful time, Kelly. Thank you so much for all of your uh, thoughtfulness and preparation and uh, for your time today in doing this. And again, we want to remind our listeners that it's really important for you to take this opportunity to engage with this uh, conversation so that you can... Uh, as you've heard from Kelly, having listened to this, that you can take the opportunity then to ask your questions, ask your follow-ups, ask your clarifying questions, ask additional questions that we didn't ask. Maybe you have a good question that you think should be asked and we didn't ask it. Uh, This is the the call for all of you to engage in this process and to provide your feedback uh, to the elders about uh, about your uh, view and and the process of uh, affirming new leadership for TFBC. And uh, it's important for you to do that, and uh, we we invite you to do that. Um, But for now, that's all the time we have for Truth Today. So we want to thank you for listening and for joining us today. And until next time, 
We hope that you will grow in your love and your commitment to Christ and his church. As we are sanctified in the truth, God's word is truth.